chapter 21. We're going to skip over verse uh, 30 for now, and I'm going to bring it in at the tail end. I think we're going to have two, uh, two more Sundays in John. And what the plan is after that is to move on into Acts. It's just the kind of the natural flow of things, you know, where we've been studying the ministry of Jesus. And, you know, Acts helps us to understand how what Jesus did in his ministry, how it just flowed directly into the, the, into the, uh, to the apostles and through them, how it spread through the world. So I think it's just a logical thing for us to do, and that's what the plan is at this point. Uh, so chapter 21 Beginning with verse one, after Jesus revealed himself again to the, uh, he revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. That's the Sea of Galilee, just the Roman name for it. And he revealed himself in this way: Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of the disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, "I am going fishing." They said to him, "We will go with you." They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to, to Peter, it is the Lord." When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. And other disciples, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. It's an interesting statement. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus revealed, was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. There are a few of us here that have been in Uganda. Walter, Dick and Barb, myself. One of the things I didn't realize before I went there the first time was... Uh, that there's this massive lake, Lake Victoria, that, that borders on the southeastern side of Uganda. Uh, and, and you pass near it and, and close by as you're traveling, because we were always going from Kampala to Fort Portal, which was out in the west, and so we would drive along the Lake Victoria for a little ways, at least sometimes. But it's a massive lake. It's, it's, it's called one of the African Great Lakes. Fresh water, it's where tilapia originated. These tilapia that you and I are buying at the grocery store now, they came from the Nile, and it dumps into the Nile River. It's one of the sources of the Nile River. But I would imagine that the culture that you find there in Uganda along the shoreline now is very closely like the one that you found around the Sea of Galilee or, or the the Lake of Tiberias, as it's called here, in the days of Christ. That most of the people that lived there were involved in the fishing industry in one way or another. 
Some of them did the fishing. Some of them did the preparation. A lot of the fish that came in here was carried all the way to Jerusalem and into the city through the fish gate. You've heard of the fish gate in Jerusalem? That's what it was used for. But this is where four of the disciples came from. This was their profession before Jesus called them, and they, were, they actually were engaged in their profession in this same place when Jesus first called them to follow him into the ministry. This didn't involve all of the disciples. There's only seven of them here. We know that Judas is gone from the picture now, so there were others that were not there. Now, let me tell you, I've heard a lot of sermons on this particular text through the years, and, and, and sadly, very often, the way things go is this, is, you know, Jesus was resurrected, Jesus was gone, they were lost, they didn't know what to do, so they just decided to go back to their old profession again. So they went back to Galilee just to pick up where they had left off when Jesus had called them. I don't believe for one minute that's what is going on here at all. And please, if you ever hear a sermon like that, turn off the radio. It's got nothing to do with what is going on here. It may sound like a reasonable explanation to some people, but it is not a biblical explanation of it at all. What I would say to you is this, is they are only being obedient to what Christ had already told them to do. Matthew chapter 28, verse 7, go tell his disciples that he is risen. This is the angel speaking to Mary, Magdalene. Go tell his disciples that he is risen and he is going before you to where? To Galilee. Mark records these words spoken by Jesus. Chapter 14, verse 28. After I am risen up, I will go before you to Galilee. <laughs> so what I'm telling you here is this, is they were just doing what Jesus told them to do. They weren't sure what was going to happen when they get there. Uh, you know, in, in, in this, that, and the other, but they're faithful. And, and, but it wasn't all of them. It was only seven of them. There were, other, there were four others who didn't go for whatever reason it was. Of course, Judas is out of the picture now, so there's only 11 of them total. And I will say this, and that is they don't stay there very long. They go there and they have this encounter with Christ but before long, they have to get back to Jerusalem. Why? Because that is when Pentecost is, and that's when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church and all that other stuff. So they have to be there for that. So this was just kind of a side trip to the Sea of Galilee. I don't know about you, but I can sit around sometimes a little bit but I can't do it for very long. I get antsy. Some people are smiling. Some people are laughing. I don't know if they're laughing at me or they're laughing about somebody else. 
But this is Peter. They're there waiting for Jesus. They're waiting. And he hasn't appeared. So he's doing what men always do, or a lot of times men do, when they have a little extra time on their hands. He declares he's going to go fishing. And so he does, and the others declared that they would go with him. Now, if you've ever done any fishing, you know this. Sometimes you catch fish. Sometimes you catch a few fish. Sometimes maybe you catch a whole bunch of fish, and sometimes you don't catch one single fish at all. And that's not what any fisherman wants to experience. I mean, when you, when you go fishing, you're always anticipating you're going to catch fish. If you knew you weren't going to catch anything before you went, you might not even bother going. I probably would, but some people wouldn't. Because fishing is all about catching fish. It's also about this, too. There's a camaraderie that takes place. You know, very often when guys go fishing, they don't go by themselves. They take other guys with them. Every now and then, they might even take their wife with them. But I've had some real interesting conversations with my sons, because my sons and I used to fish all the time when they were home. And, you know, we had a boat. We went out on the grass flats and fished for trout and redfish quite a bit and, and that sort of thing for years and years and years. But then the boys grew up. They moved away. And, you know, the next thing I know, the boat's just kind of sitting there in the yard and sitting there in the yard and, and that kind of thing. And I keep having to mow around it and... <laughs> You know, that kind of thing is really inconvenient, so we decided to get rid of it, and we did. And every now and then, you know, I wish I had it again and, and, and all that, but, uh, but there was a real bonding that took place. And let me just tell you this, Riley's done a lot of fishing in his day, and when Lori and I first got married, he and uh, Lori's brother Paul and our brother-in-law Bill, we used to go grouper fishing almost every single weekend. We would head out on Saturday morning and stay out all day, and we'd come back very often with a boatload of fish. But there are a lot of conversations that took, you know, when you're fishing, you can stand there all day and not say anything, or you can actually, because, you know, a lot of it, especially grouper fishing, because the only thing you're doing is hanging your line down there just off the bottom, and you're not casting it out, you know, and reeling it back in and uh, all that all the time. So it's really kind of boring until you get a hit, and then it becomes very exciting. But we had a lot of conversations that took place. And I would imagine that was going on with these guys. They're talking about things that they're concerned about and just everything going on. And I would imagine one of the things they're talking about is what has just recently happened with the, the death and the, the crucifixion and the, and the resurrection of Christ. Maybe wondering why he wanted them to come to Galilee. But we all know this. We know that when you go fishing, you don't always catch fish. And that happens to these guys. And, and just remember this. The kind of fishing we do is not hard work for the most part. Maybe when you get a big fish on it, you might call it hard work. But for the most part, it's not something you would call very strenuous or whatever. That we fish with rods and reels. These guys were fishing with big nets. And when you got fish in the net, you had to haul the whole thing in. A wet, soaked net plus 
in this case, 153 fish in it. So it's not work for the faint-hearted. It is very physical labor. And so I don't forget, I want to remind us of this, that, uh, that Jesus had been teaching them some lessons for the last three years. And remember, when he had first encountered these men who were fishermen, this is what he said to them. He said, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They already had the heart to be fishermen. God or Christ just had to change their focus. That from that point on, their profession was no longer going to be the harvesting of fish from the lake. Their profession was going to be harvesting fish from among people. Their fishing must have been a little bit on the rusty side. I would imagine that these guys had done so much of it in their lifetime, it's probably rare that they came in without anything. They knew where to go. They knew what the right technique was, you know, this, that, and the other. And so I would imagine it was probably not a very common thing for them to come in without anything to show for the day or the night. They were fishing all night and had nothing to show for it at all, not one fish. We know this. We know why they didn't catch any fish. The Bible doesn't tell us specifically, but we can, we can add two and two together and come up with a conclusion, and that is they didn't catch any fish because God didn't want them to catch any fish. Because Jesus wanted the opportunity to teach them an object lesson, which he was just about to do. Now, you may be familiar with this. This has been somewhat of a controversial text. I don't know if you know this or not. Because Luke chapter 4 records a similar instance, which is early on in the ministry of Jesus. This is late in the ministry of Jesus, immediately before he rises up into heaven again. You know, that sort of thing. And so this is an attacking point by liberal, so-called liberal Bible scholars who are not really Bible scholars at all. You need to understand that. That you have this event of Jesus or these guys fishing and Jesus coming and all that. And Luke says it happened early on in the ministry. And John says it happened at the very tail end of the ministry of Jesus. Assuming that it's talking about the same event. So how would you respond to that? Well, what I'd say is it's two absolutely different stories. <laughs> you know, fishing was something these guys did all the time, and it should not surprise us that there's more, you know, more than just one fishing episode that takes place in the Gospels. I don't know if you've ever heard that or not, but this is one of the attacking points by liberal scholars. You see, 
This happened here. It says one thing. Another one says this. Your Bible is not inerrant. The Bible is full of an error. There's an error. There's a good example of an error right there. And it's, but it's just logically reasonable for you and I to know this. And, that is, and the details are not exactly the same either. You need to understand that. These guys were fishermen, and it should not surprise us that there's more, more than one fishing event in the Gospels. So don't ever let anybody tell you that. Well, some people will try to, that your Bible's inconsistent. It says this one place and says something else somewhere else. Well, another thing there is that the details that are there in both of those narratives are not identical to one another, which tells you right off the bat they're not the same event. Jesus appears on the shoreline, and a conversation takes place. He calls them Pideon. You know what that means? Not children, but little children, baby children. He doesn't say, hey guys, or hey disciples. Why did he do that? Well, we don't really know. But we understand that, that in the eyes of God, they in fact are children of God. And we may be ascribed a lot of different titles, being of church people. Some people call us Christians and, you know, this, that, and the other. But you know what? The most endearing title that God would ever give to any of us is that we are his children. And Jesus is merely reminding them of that very dear and important fact. It dawns on John, first of all, that in fact this person on the beach that is calling out to them is Jesus. Sometimes Peter is called impetuous Peter. Peter is the one who always jumps to action. And he's so excited to see Jesus. Just remember, he had taken off his outer garment because of the grueling manual labor that he was enduring all night, throwing that net out and hauling it in and whatever, and he was sweating like the dickens and hot and this and the other. So he had stripped down to his undergarments. And something peculiar happens at this point. You know, he, he's so anxious to see Christ, you know, up close and personal, not at a distance, because they were at 100 yards away, basically, when this conversation was taking place. But before Peter jumps into the lake, because he's not willing to wait the time it's going to take to haul the net in or to drag the net behind the boat as they have to row in. So what does he do? He puts on his outer garment again and he jumps in the sea and starts swimming. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I can't remember the last time I swum 100 yards in one time. I'm not sure I've ever done that in my whole lifetime. I'm not sure I could do that, especially fully clothed. (laughs) But I think that's a measure of just how excited Peter was. He wasn't thinking straight. You know, most people say, I'm not going to put that heavy thing on and jump in the water because the soap up the water is going to make it really hard for me to swim. But he's so anxious, he's so impetuous to see Jesus, he's, Katie, bar the door, I'm going, forget about anything else. So he swims all the way in. And I can't ever remember swimming... You need to, and Peter's just pumped. I mean, the adrenaline's flowing like maybe it's never flowed in his whole lifetime. Just remember, Jesus just gave them, them every fisherman's dream a boatload of fish. And now for Peter, the fish don't even matter at all. I think one of the things going on here is this, is Peter, his whole focus is shifted. He understands what is important, what is of greater importance going on at this moment. And he forgets about everything else. Well, let me ask you something. If you had been in that boat that day, what would you have done? Would you be swimming? Or would you be rowing the boat, hauling a load of fish in a net, dragging it behind the boat, slowing you down? Can you imagine... Having something like this really happen. To see Jesus. Really. To be in the presence of Christ. And let me tell you something. One of these days, you will have that experience. You know, when we leave this world, there's all kinds of things that could hold us back. Sometimes people cling to life with all of their strength and might. But you know something? Sometimes living in this world, in essence, is holding us back from something far greater. Something far better. I want to remind us this morning that God has already determined every single second that you will live in your whole lifetime. But we've already started the process of dying. 
The moment you became a Christian, you started dying in a sense. Dying to the world and living unto Christ. That will be completed at the time of our physical death. And not until... Just remember this. He called them to become fishers of men. And let me just tell you, we're going into Acts after we finish John. Why? Because it's a continuation of what is taking place. And it shows us the result of what actually happened. The ministry of Jesus passed on to these disciples, apostles. And let me tell you, they struggled. But they were also faithful to the Great Commission. To go to Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the world. There has never been a time in the history of the church in which the gospel spread through people kind in such a short period of time as it did through these guys. They were true to their calling of being no longer fishers of fish, but fishers of men. These apostles account for the greatest missionary force that ever occurred in all of history. By the end of their lifetime, the gospel had spread like a raging wildfire through the whole Mediterranean area. They truly became fishers of men. They were true to their calling. Dick and Barb, in a sense, served as missionaries for years. Spent most of their time here, but on a regular basis, they were in Uganda. Some of you know that the first time I went to Uganda, I fell in love with it the country, but you know what? I fell in love with the people even more. When I was in seminary, I hoped that I would be called to be a missionary to Uganda. That's what I wanted to do. It didn't happen. God obviously had other plans. But I love being a part of a denomination that is dead serious about world evangelism. Just remember this, that with all this stuff going on in the Ukraine, we have brothers and sisters of the PCA that are there in the Ukraine going through all of this with the local people that live there.
We're not a humongous denomination. But there is a significant percentage of our ministry efforts that go to foreign missions. One of our mottos is that we are attempting as best we can to be faithful to the Great Commission. Right now, MTW is asking that every church in our denomination pray that they would be able to send 1% of their people into the foreign mission field. One measly percent. And you know what? If that happened, we would have a missionary force far greater than we've ever had by a long shot. We have, a, we have a PCA website, and there is a place on there for MTW. And if you want to know what they're doing, you know, where we need missionaries today and that sort of thing, no better place to begin than take a look at the website. I am thankful that we are a church that has actually sent people on the foreign mission field. Not a big church. Some of you remember Ken and Kathy Morey. They were the first ones from us to go to Honduras. They were the ones who first established our connection with the people in Honduras so that we could later build on it. Michael and Cindy Erb have been there now for a long time, and they have no plans on coming home. I used to, you know, hope maybe they'd be there for a couple years or five years or ten years, but I gave up hoping a long time ago that they would ever come back. And then we have Dick and Barb, who spent so many years sponsoring the uh, orphan sponsorship program. When they made those regular trips to Uganda, how many times have you guys been to Uganda? <laughs> you know, I thought I had something to be puffed up because I've been four. <laughs> See, there you go. We need this, and I know this. I know that we're all older. You know, we have all of our aches and pains, and this, that, and the other. And I understand and. Uh, and whatever, but there may be someone here that, that is, God is actually calling to do this, and you're resisting it, and you've got all kinds of reasons and all kinds of excuses why you just can't do it, but when God calls, no matter where we are, how can we possibly tell him no? This is all his show. Did it hear anything? Feel anything? We can't go. What we need to do is support those who do as best we can. I'm glad that we're a church that gives a significant part of our budget to foreign missions. I only wish we could do better.
praise team is going to come and lead us in a hymn of preparation.